this philosophy here at CSF where we teach through books of the Bible. So every, every year, about April, uh, I begin to pray and talk with student voices in the community. And uh, we pick the book of Acts. And so we spent the entire first semester, Acts 1 through 12. We're going to spend the whole second semester, Acts 13 through 28. And so here's where we ended last semester. Barnabas and Saul had finished a mission. They're returning to Jerusalem. Now the church in Antioch, there's prophets and teachers. Uh, and while they, all these people within the church, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. And so here's the question that Bill helped us ask to close down last semester. What does it sound like for the Holy Spirit to call them? What does it sound like? Like, what was that literally like? And I love reading the Bible in this way. When I read clear words like this, I'd stop and I'd, and I'd think through it. Um, and so I want to give you three answers from the text right here of how the Holy Spirit called. They were worshiping, they were gathering, and they were fasting. Like there was three things happening in the church in order to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit last semester. And here's the cool thing about Acts. All through this book, what we've been watching is that when the church gathers together of one heart and of one mind, they change the world, and it's incredible. That's a spoiler alert, because tonight in Acts 13, what we're going to do is we're going to see a little hint that sets up Acts 15, where the main character in our back half of Acts, he's going to have a radical split in the church, and I'm going to see if you guys catch it. I'm not teaching on it this week. We'll see it in a couple weeks. But at their best, the whole church is gathered, worshiping, fasting. They're of one mind and of one action. Now, here's the reality, and maybe you felt this going home whenever you had to look at your parents and they said, what are you doing with your life? What's your major again? How are we going to pay for that? Do you have a job lined up? Maybe some of you have heard this in your home over the week. And here's the reality. Sometimes God doesn't talk to you and I with this type of clarity. Make sense? I have a friend named Trent who just moved into my barn for a short season. And whenever he was sitting in your seat, he said to me, Josh, I wish God would just hit me with a brick. It would hurt, but it would say yes or no on the brick. And I'd know what to do because I've got too much. And God's voice is too quiet and it's too small. In Genesis, way at the beginning of the Bible, God's voice was not still and small. God's voice was radical. He looked at this guy named Abraham and he said, follow me and I will take you to a land and there I will make you a great people. He, he's, and he like called Abram out of his home into a new space. And then if you move into Exodus, whenever the Israelites are moving through the desert, God is not still and quiet with his voice. He's a freaking pillar of fire. It descends on the mountaintop and everybody in the camp knows where God is at. That's not our experience, if we're honest, lots of the time. And so here is the aha. Again and again, when the voice of God is quiet, we have to have tools in our toolbox to meet him, to hear him, and then to follow. 
And the reason that I love the book of Acts is that the early church gets it right. For all the times they get it wrong, they get it right when they gather together, when they worship and they pray. Here is the aha. There it is. Responding to God's call requires an adventurous step of faith. Because if we all agree that the voice of God is often vague and small, then the reality is that we can take the step of following him and maybe have gotten it wrong. And that, my young friends, is scary for everyone, even at the ripe old age of 39. We are wired as humans for self-protection. And, and here's the aha. When we commit to the adventure of following God, when we commit to that adventure, it is about our motivation for the step rather than the fear of getting it wrong. Chapter 13 is where we are tonight. <laughs> I can take a hint. Let's get into the text. Okay, I got you. I got you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Let me do one more thing. Let me do one more thing before we get to chapter 13 and preach into it. Here's what I'm calling us to be. Um, I love I love preaching the first couple weeks of both semesters because I say the same thing every time, which is this is the commitment we're going to teach through books of the Bible together. The second thing that I love to say is if you're just trying this out, you do not have to find your home community here, but we want you here. And so if it's not here, please leave and find a place where you are known, not in a negative way, find a place where you are known and you actually have people who you who look for you who all right, because that's a gift for me to say, because I'm not like jealous for you. I want you to find your people. And so I hope that's with, with us at CSF. But if it's not, I want to send you. Here's what I'm calling the people who, who would like to step into community deeper and deeper and deeper. I'd love to call you to commit to 15 weeks as a united community that seeks the voice and the will of God. love for as a community we're able to read the text together and then to gather at the table together and to have these conversations of I'm scared will you go with me or I think we stay in this comfort zone I'll go with you I'd love to be that type of community and here's why I say at the table because eating together and praying for one another is one of the hallmarks that we want to drive into our ministry like this place we call the campus house. You can live here. You don't have to live here to be a part of our ministry. And one of the best things that we've got going is that worship band and Miss Terry's kitchen. All right? And you are welcome to the table. We open that kitchen. We open that dining room again and again. Because eating together and then praying for one another, this is a picture of the table. Watch this video clip. There is a longing in the deepest parts of us to belong, the hope that there is a table somewhere that we, we might actually be comfortable inside our own skin. We don't have to hide, we don't have to have our secrets. 
is a little clip from a movie that um, the guys retreat is going to build around. But I wanted to grab it, and we're doing something a little unique tonight. We're going to serve communion and take it as a, as a family, as a community here. So we're going to gather at the table because here is the aha of the story of Scripture. We are welcomed at the table of God before we get ourselves right. We are welcomed at the table of God before we clean ourselves up. And you are welcome to participate in a story that is told in an ancient, ancient story that we learn throughout Scripture. It's the night before Jesus went to the cross. He looked at the men who he had been living life alongside. And he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body and it represents what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my life for you on the cross. These are the same guys who in the next few moments would say, I don't know this man. Guys, if I can get one picture across to start off our semester, it's this. When we participate in the story of the gospel, when we come to the table united as a community that says we are not perfect and yet God has made a way for us, then all of a sudden the kingdom is available to you and I. And then Jesus did this. He took the cup, the bowl of grape juice, and then he passed it to his his brothers men who he'd been living life alongside for the past three years, who in the next few moments would say, I do not know this man, I swear, I don't know him. He gives these men the cup and he says, this cup represents my blood. And what this blood is doing is it's covering me because I give it freely. No one's taking my life, I'm laying it down and this is going to cover you. I've given my life and now my blood covers you. Don't get yourself right to come to this table. And in communion, this is the story that we tell. So I don't know your church background, but in the smallest of ways, here's what I need you to hear tonight. As we kick off the semester, before we have an emotional service, before the band crushes it again, here's what we need to do. We need to say, God, no matter what I look like to myself and to you, you have already prepared the table. And I want to eat it. So I have people come and serve. I'm going to play some soft music. I'm going to get someone to dim the lights. And we're just going to do this quickly. And then I'll actually preach because someone said access issues were up there. Okay, so dim for me. I'll hit the music. And I got some silver dollars. i 
Thanks for that. Uh, let me pray for us. And then uh, Acts 13, verse 12. I mean, we're flying, guys. We're flying. Hmm. Got to pray for uh, <laughs> that person who broke their leg. And, yeah, in our community. Um, yeah, we, we come with... Uh, gift of uh, the gift and the hope of of your son the gift of Jesus is that he is not far from us when we walk through the good and the bad um, the, the lonely and the um, and the crowded but God you are with us in the chaos with desire to bring us to peace and so I pray for that over our semester Good stuff. Here's uh, verse 4. The two of them, remember this is Barney and Saul, went on their way, by the Holy, sent by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Uh, a couple verses here to get us kicked off. As you guys heard, obviously, we captured that there was three cities, open seas, and 90 mountainous miles. Three cities, open seas, and, and ghosts, I guess, in the campus house. I don't know. Or that same broken leg person. All of this, all of this goes right over our heads. Okay, so that verse, the verse 4 and 5, it goes right over our heads. Some of us, it goes more smoothly than others of us. Here's the thing. This means nothing to you and I until we study. But it's the same thing as me saying, today I had lunch with somebody who is off to Nepal this summer for a couple months. And I had a great conversation hearing about a trip from, from a two-week run in Kenya over the past Christmas break and what it's like to, to celebrate New Year's Eve in, what am I thinking about here? Amsterdam. Yeah, that's right. I'm getting old. I'm getting old. Here's the aha. When I say those words, you all immediately fly and see like, whoa, Nepal, that's way far. Oh my gosh, how'd you get from Kenya to Amsterdam? And you did that? Like that was culture shock. Right? We say that because we know the context. That's happening here to Luke's readers. And so just for acknowledgement here, this Bible was not written to the Western American church. Right? It was written to Luke's readers. And here's the aha. Luke is the author, but he's also a doctor and a historian. And he's telling us these places because I'm sure that Barney and Saul stopped somewhere along the way because a 90 miles of mountains, there was obviously places and cities and towns where the gospel was spread as well. So here's the aha. Luke's doing something with his message. Luke is telling you three cities over 90 miles in open seas because he's trying to do something. And the readers back in the day catch it. And that's what we have to do a little bit as well. Here's the first thing that, that Luke is trying to let you know. That Saul, Barney and Saul are out to meet the Roman governors in each of the capital cities. Now, I'm, I'm jumping you ahead to verse 9. Because verse 9 is coming. Saul is going to be called Paul. And so I have a little meme of what that was like. (laughs) 
And the internet is always our friend. What you need to know is more than that. Paul is going to go from Roman capital cities to the middle of nowhere, Galatia. He's going to go to Galatian synagogues. And then he's going to go from there to a city called Lystra. And what he's getting in Lystra is he's going to talk to pagans. This is incredible. What I just told you there was three completely different worldviews that the readers would have known immediately from the places that, that we had mentioned through Acts 13. First thing that's going to happen, he's going to go to Roman capitals. From there, he's going to the outskirts of nowhere, Galatia, looking for a couple people in particular. And then from there, he's going to the pagans in Lystra. Three completely different worldviews of people. And here's what Paul is doing. He's adapting to different situations. He's going to individuals and crowds, Jews and Gentiles. And here's the thing I love. He's going to the irreligious as much as the religious, the friendly and the hostile. Because things are going to get spicy. Okay, here we go. Let's read together. Uh, right here. They travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here we go. We're going to read a, a long chunk together. I'm telling you a little story about what Paul does. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. Cool little name. There they met a Jewish sorcerer, seems like an oxymoron, and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, weird name, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. That's that Roman governor. The proconsul was an intelligent man. He sends for Barney and Saul because, verse 9 hasn't happened yet, Barney and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from his faith. Okay, big, big hinge point. Paul, because this is verse 10, as you can see it in the mark there. So Saul becomes Paul and Arthur happened. And then here's what Paul says now. You, talking to the sorcerer, are a child of the devil, Bobby Boucher, and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full. <laughs> he didn't say that. He didn't say that part. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. And then here's this crazy part, right? If you've been with us through first semester, you're going to be like, wait a tick. Here's what Paul says. Paul now, not Saul. You are going to be blind for a time and not even, once again, the internet will be our friend, not even able to see the light of the sun. That happened. Okay, but we're not done yet, right? Because verse 11, verse 11 feels familiar. <laughs> Immediately, a mist and darkness came over the sorcerer, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what happened, verse 12, he believed and was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now, silly little, silly little means, I get it. But here's the actual teaching point for us, right? What do we do with this in 2020? I think we do this. If we know that responding to the call of God takes an adventurous step of faith, then interfering with God's call requires the same step of faith. What is that step? That I am right. Yeah? The question is, how do you and I 
if we are united in him. Okay, so here's my premise, right? My premise is this, that um, the Holy Spirit called Barnabas and Saul um, for a mission, but he didn't say anything else. And yet the whole church was gathered, worshiping, fasting, and paying attention about him. And so out of his freedom, here's what Saul did. He went to Roman capital. He, he jumped on a boat and rolled over to Cyprus. And there he looks for Sergius Paulus. And he made a beeline straight. After this, he's going to go straight into the heart of Galatia. He's going to go another 100 miles. So this is a 200-mile trip already by ancient standards. That's a long time, right? And so here's the aha. Here's the aha. How do you know if you're interfering with the God's call? Because God's call can be really quiet. And what it sounds like to you may not be what it sounds like to someone else. I wrote about this, trying to answer it. How do you know if you're interfering? There's a couple questions. Are you an active part of a gathering church? Like, it's harder to interfere if you're an active participant in a, in a gathered church who's worshiping and joining in community at the table. Do you strive to be one in mind and action? And then here's my favorite part. Do you take risks with vulnerability because you might get it wrong? See, here's the thing. It always takes a step for me to stand up here and open the scripture because I know what my life looks like behind closed doors, right? And so to, for me to stand up and say, guys, I've been studying this and I don't always live in the way that I want to be living in front of you, I don't always live that out in other places. Here's the reality. I can vulnerably say I'm not doing that well and I don't at that point interfere with the voice of God. I'm welcome to get it wrong because I've already been at the table with God. He sets the table in the, in the, place, in the, in the place for his table. It's an incredible, incredible idea. Seeking the voice, seeking the will of God requires you and I to follow his lead. And we must believe in the truth of this story. And that is the aha that I see here. Sergius Paulus believed. We see that from Paphos, Paul and his companions are going over to Perga, Pamphylia, where John will lead them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went to Poseidon Antioch, and on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue, and they sat down. So what happened in that place was a hundred more miles. And again, when I say Kenya to Amsterdam, you know in your head, whoa, that's a long flight, right? The same thing would have happened to Luke's readers right here. On the Sabbath, they, Barnabas and Paul, enter the synagogue to sit down. Verse 15, after reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation, please let us speak. Um, so this is the point where I would like to look around the room and if you have a word of exhortation, just prepared a little bit of what to say welcome to come up here. Oh, I guess Brogan too. <laughs> so Brogan, one of the things that we do if you're new to us is over this past semester, we've been trying to have uh, a couple different voices 
teaching alongside me. So Logan's got it a little bit inside. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So my name is Brogan Hagemeyer. For those who don't know, I do like to have a story, kind of a lower story in my perspective, kind of upper story going on. I thought, I need an example of this, an illustration. And I was like, wait, what if we had two comedically different height people preaching tonight? I thought, oh, wait, maybe average height, worldwide average, that is. And then one, you know, a little bit taller than that. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that would be a great example. Oh, wait, it is. Uh, <laughs> and so as I'm going through this and as I was doing some more research, I realized what we see in the text is a kind of a, a traditional form of communication during that day. And so what you would see in a lot of plays and a lot of just kind of dialogues that would happen in order to convey a point you would have a person and they would tell a story and it'd be kind of this meandering story it'd go around for a while and all of a sudden they would end in a speech and what do we have in Acts 13 we have almost exactly that and you kind of have this recapping of the history of the Jewish people by Paul and that's really important because he hits on a few very key characters here before he ends in the speech a couple of those characters are Moses the prophets and David and so in that time, to the Jewish people, the Moses would have represented the law. And so he's grounding this story of Jesus, not only just kind of superfluously and everything else going on, but he's grounding it specifically in the law that the Jewish people would have been very, very familiar with. And then he moves on from there, and he starts talking about the prophets. Now all of a sudden we have this idea of prophecy and this idea that maybe there was some foreshadowing in order to, to point towards Jesus, maybe. And then after that, all of a sudden we have David come into play. And David was very, very important because not only was he the king of Israel during kind of his prime time, but he was a, almost a messianic figure in of himself. He was kind of the, this precursor almost to Jesus. And many of the Jewish people would have considered him to be kind of this almost Messiah type of figure. And so after that, Paul continues on and he's talking about all these things. And so these Jewish people would have been very much registering with all that he's talking about in a way that we might not necessarily register with. And I want that to sink in a little bit. Sometimes in the Bible, context becomes very important. I would say almost all the time it's very important. But you have a Jewish context, a Jewish audience, sometimes a Greek audience, and those audiences were very different than us, and they thought very differently than we do. So I want, I think, to encourage you guys when you read your Bible to maybe do some more research and kind of figure out some of the ways that the people at the time would have been reading what was being stated and hear, more importantly, hearing what was being stated because that was life. And so what we got is these prophecies that are now referenced. There's a few verses throughout um, Acts that are specifically are brought out. One of those is Psalms 22, 1 through 31. Another is Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. And the last one is Daniel 9, 1 through 27. And I want to hit on specifically Psalms 22, 1 through 31, because this, this is a very interesting psalm because it's uh, written by David, and it's during a time where Absalom, his son, was seeking to overthrow him. And if you can imagine that, your own son turning against you, kind of as a bit of a maybe Luke Darth Vader moment in reverse, something like that, maybe. <laughs> I'm trying to put it in context. Uh, <laughs> So the, what's going on with David is he is upset and he is run out of the kingdom. He's refusing to fight his son, which is a very kind of countercultural thing. Because you, during that time, you know, if your son's going to overthrow you, you're going to kill him. That's it. He's done. You have a lot of other sons, so you're good. But, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, 
so David, rather than do that, he acts very counterculturally, runs to the hills, and then for some reason decides, oh, I'm going to pin down this psalm real quick. And so we get what is written about here in Acts as a prophecy, but to David it was what was currently going on. It was more the news for him than it was just a prophetic message. But yet we have Paul point back to it and say, when he, when David was talking about the son will become the father and the father will become the son, that is a prophecy. But then to David, that was not a prophecy. That was him talking about what was going on in his life. And so now we arrive at a question. There's a few times, a lot of times throughout the Bible where a prophetic message or prophetic interpretation is given to a previous text uh, by the or by the apostles, by the disciples. And so we're kind of forced to confront this idea of these disciples pointing back towards the text, the messages that weren't originally prophecies, and then saying, look, these are prophecies pointing to Jesus. And so I want to ask you guys to kind of consider for a moment, talk amongst yourself, what, what is a biblical prophecy to you? What are the implications of it? What does it mean? How does it interact with itself? What is the kind of dialogue going on? So if you guys would take a few minutes, talk amongst each other, what is prophecy, and get back. All right, guys, bring it back in. Quiet on down. Do we have anybody that wants to tell the group what they talked about? Yeah, I think that hits on a very interesting point. Something I'm still trying to kind of figure out is it's not so much trying to predict the future as it is addressing a very current need, a very current reality. And not that I'm not saying at all that it can't talk about the future. I think some, a lot of times it actually does, but I, I want to challenge you guys to start thinking about maybe even your own stories in this context. How many times do you see somebody in your life and realize they've gone through something hard, you know, whether that be their parents got divorced, there's a death in their family, something like that, and then realize your own story can speak into that. And so you bring what's from your past into the future, and it wasn't necessarily that what happened to you in the past applied right directly to their story, but you're able to empathize, you're able to relate, you're able to bring that forward. I think that's a really kind of in interesting, a really unique, and a really important interaction that we see that happens with prophetic verses in the Bible. So again, when you kind of encounter those in the future, I want to kind of challenge you to think about it in that context. And so speaking of context, we run into a, another little piece of trivia that shows up in Acts 13.32. And this is where Paul talks about bringing the good news. He says, I'm bringing the good news to you. And that's a verse that we see a lot of times in the Bible by a lot of different authors. And what this good news means in the Greek is euangelion. Euangelion is a very hard word to say, but I think I nailed it. <laughs> and so euangelion, what that literally, again, translates to is good news, but there's this greater cultural context. And so when a, a Caesar during that time of the Roman Empire would establish his authority, he would send out all of his vassals throughout the land, and he would say, I'm bringing you the good news. I'm bringing this prosperity to my people, so please don't overthrow me. But it was a message of economic power, economic advancement, military might, all these things, all these good things as empire to come. And that is not necessarily what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about Jesus's message, his, Jesus's good news. And that was very countercultural to what the Romans would have thought of when you heard the good news, the euangelion. And I want to I wanna ask you guys, how many people have been on mission trips in here? Show of hands. All right, a lot of people. Now, how many of you guys actively sought to kind of undermine the political economic systems of the country you're in? No, Jack? Okay. <laughs> Rebel over there. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, so that is actually what we see Paul doing here. By pronouncing Jesus' euangelion, the good news, he's elevating Jesus to the level of a Caesar. And if the Caesars, if I know anything about the Caesars, it's they don't like people challenging <laughs> their authority. And that's exactly what we have happening. And so Paul is really not only just pronouncing the good news, but he's putting himself out on the line here. And that is a dangerous situation. And that is something that, again, I think we can maybe reflect on. Like, the good news is not something that is just comfortable. It's not something that we can go out into the world and kind of passively live. It is something that is actively dangerous, that actively undermines, that goes covert. And it is something that is very difficult to do. So jumping a little bit ahead, I want to talk about, again, uh, the psalm, the psalm of David. And I want to point to how it is the, this interaction that we see before he goes to the closing, before Paul goes into his final speech. He closes his story with David. And the, again, the story he's talking about there is Absalom. And in this, we see uh, the text fulfilling itself. And David is pointing back and saying, or David is in a way pointing forward. Paul is pointing back. And we see this awesome interaction of the text amongst itself. And so, again, I want to challenge you guys to be able to think of the text in that way. It's not dead. And I think that's a very important truth that we need to really take to heart is the text is active and alive. And if you truly believe that, we say it all the time, but if you truly believe it, it is not something that's necessarily just set. It is something that continues to inform our own lives and continues to imply truth into wherever we're at, whatever time period we're in. But in order to do that, we have to understand the context. We have to understand the themes, the, the truths that are inherent within the writing itself and to the original people who would have been receiving that message. So it's a hard thing to do. But it's something that I have found very valuable in my own life. And again, I think you guys would benefit from so much that it takes a little bit more work. So I'm going to hand it back over to Josh now. Again, lower story, going back upper story. Let's do it. <laughs> Okay, so check, 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 two, that one. Oh, we good? Okay, all right, so here's the big ending. The big ending on Paul's first sermon is he's going to tap to one more storyline. What Brogan was able to do was take you through the narrative of the story, and then here is the closing word of Paul's sermon. It's verse 40, if you're following along. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Take care. Like when you hear this story, make sure that your response is not the same as what the prophet said. And what Paul's doing is looking backwards. He tells the story from a little prophet named Habakkuk. If you haven't read the book of Habakkuk, it is an amazing, quick, quick four, four chapter minor prophet that feels a little scary. But it's beautiful because the Habakkuk is a prophet that talks back to God. Here is my big closing for the idea of an adventurous step of faith versus interfering with God's story. It is not wrong to get your path wrong with God. It is not wrong to, take a, to make a risk or to ask God the question, where are you or why are you doing this? That is never wrong. But what Paul says in to close his sermon and the close for us is to take care with these words. And when we hear them, apply them forward into our life. I love the practical application of it. So here's the heartbeat of CSF. We want you guys to gather and go deep. 
We've mentioned several different mission trips tonight, and there's one upcoming. Uh, Sarah Bynum is right over there on the on the wall. She has some handouts for Agua Viva. Uh, if you would like to go down to Guatemala and work in um, the mission project there or the school, uh, she is someone that you would want to talk to. Um, but there's a deadline fast approaching for getting your in um, earnest money, I guess. Rogan and I went to Honduras last year together um, and had these same conversations sitting out, looking over the city, talking about the story. So that is the place where you guys as college students are called to go find your story in the greater context of God. But then, just like Rogan said, by learning God's story, we can then apply it back to our lives. Amen? Good stuff. we got a couple more songs to close it out. I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, that is the prayer again and again that we don't fix ourselves, that we step into your story and that by your spirit you would change ours and transform us into the people um, that bring your kingdom. And so we give you the praise for that. Um, Again, we're thankful for today.